Good morning. Thanks for tuning in to Calvary Chapel Sydney's live stream. It's a blessing to uh, share the Word of God with you today. We'll be in the book of Luke in chapter 10 if you want to turn there. Um, and let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your Word. Thank you that you are the everlasting God, that Jesus is the great I Am, our great High Priest, uh, our Messiah and Savior. Thank you for your word that is quick and powerful, it's sharp, it discerns our motives and thoughts and intents of our heart, and thank you that it does not return void, but accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. Thank you that you make us fruitful, Lord. You cause your work in and through us to be awesome. And we pray, Lord, you would strengthen, you would encourage, and fill us with your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. What's your view on work? I think some people view work as a curse, but really God made it to be a blessing. God put Adam to work in the garden before the fall, and it is so good to have work to do, that God gives us work to do and enables us to do His work. And when we think about work, I think about like your job, the job you're perhaps paid for or work around the house or chores, and it's possible to have a job that's so enjoyable that it's like, and we're getting paid too. It's, it's really fun, and it's not necessarily who you're working for or the work you're doing, but the people that you're working with. Even the worst job, it can be really tolerable and really enjoyable when you have the right folks around. And um, every day at work, it's an opportunity to put um, our faith in the Lord, to walk in love towards one another and grace I remember many times my mom would be working and scrubbing something and just say, isn't this fun? And I thought she was a bit crazy, really, because that was not my idea of fun. I would rather be playing outside or um, doing a lot of other things, basically anything at that moment. However, I grew to learn that the task itself wasn't the admirable thing, but um, the results of it. It was exciting to be making progress, to have something that was dirty become clean, and to stand back and admire that and say, wow, it looks so good now. And that brings enjoyment out of a dirty job, is when you can see progress and results. And, and you might be sour on work today. You may feel like your efforts aren't being recognized, that the conflict that you're facing with people is, is weighing upon you. The hours are long, you feel like you're not being compensated, uh, you're spinning your wheels, the daily grind is wearing you down, but, but cheer up, because our efforts done unto the Lord will be rewarded, and Jesus is near us wherever we go, wherever he's placed you, that you're on holy ground, because he walks with you. Um, like all good things, work can expose us as idolaters where we take pride in what we've accomplished or we find our identity in the things that we do or the role that we have instead of who we are in Christ. And it's good to remember who we are in Christ, that He's the one who's working in us and through us. Jesus tells us to take His yoke upon us and learn from Him because He is meek and lowly and gentle. This is a far cry from from an arrogant or a domineering supervisor. He's in the trenches with us because we have joined him in his work. And the corporate world, it can be focused on gain. People can be greedy for more. And, but God didn't make us his partners because of what he could squeeze out of us, for how he could benefit from our service or labor. He has come to help us because we need him. 
We need His help, and we're ruined and lost without Him. Because He loves us, He's come alongside us. He's revealed Himself to us, and He enables us to go into His work. And it's not a pain or a drudgery. There's nothing more rewarding than serving the Lord and following Jesus Christ. So we reach this point in Luke 10, starting in verse 1, where Jesus sends out 70 disciples. Scripture reads, After these things the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Then he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Similar to when Jesus sent his apostles, the 12 apostles, out in Luke chapter 9, Jesus appointed 70 to go before him two by two into the cities where he would visit. Jesus had set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem, and he knew his hour was fast approaching, And it was like a runner on his last lap. Jesus was going to hit all these cities strategically on his way to Jerusalem where he knew he would uh, lay down his life on Calvary. He would die on the cross for sinners and demonstrate God's love. So these 70, they were sent out. They prepared the people to receive Jesus as he traveled towards Jerusalem. I really like what Spurgeon said about this. He says, what a mercy it is when the preacher knows that his master is coming after him when he can hear the sound of his master's feet behind him. What courage it gives him. He knows that, though it is very little that he can do, he is the thin edge end of the wedge preparing the way for one who can do everything. It's easy in a world full of big problems to be discouraged about how little we can do, how our efforts seem to lack punch, seem to lack uh, impact in the world. And in reality, by ourselves, we can do nothing. We can't change minds. We can't calm ancient hearts. We can't transform lives. But these messengers, they were like the the thin end of the wedge, the part that becomes dull, that needs to be sharpened. If you've ever split wood, and that's something we used to do, that was one of those chores that was a fun chore for me, was we'd have these logs and a couple, a sledgehammer and a few wedges, and the idea was you put it on the end, you, you get the wedge started, and then you just pound it until it splits the wood. And then you have firewood, and you get to stack it. Now, even a dull wedge, a very dull wedge, you couldn't cut yourself with this, on the finger with this wedge. But when you apply force to that wedge, it does a work. It's able to split that wood and make it useful. And it's like we are the thin part of the wedge. It's not we who supplies the power. It's God who does that, the power of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who works the wonder. He's the muscle in this picture. If we think that it falls to us to supply the strength to make a difference or to do God's work or to change the world, we'll tire quickly. We won't be successful, just like the wedge that's just sitting in the shed by itself. When we realize that we're a tool in the hands of God to accomplish His work, and He is the one supplying the strength, He is the one who places us strategically, we can be encouraged and strengthened to know He is going to do a work. He is going to apply the force, and uh, He's gentle when He does that. 
Jesus said, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. When it's harvest time, everything else is dropped to gather up the fruit of much labor and time. There's a season for sowing and a season for reaping. The soil had already been prepared, the furrows planted, uh, plowed, the fields watered and guarded, the pest had been deterred over time, and with the rain, the grain had grown or whatever crop they were to harvest, and it was time to gather it up so they could have the produce of the field. The harvest in Israel, it was great, but the laborers were few. Instead of lamenting, there were only 70, 70 of her whole nation going out. The apostles had gone out by 12, and now the disciples have gone out by 70. 70 people to reach a nation. That's a pretty big ask, right? They were to rejoice. They were to be praying that God would continue to send out laborers into his harvest because God is Lord of the harvest, and the harvest is his. This wasn't the end. It's like they were praying for their nation, but they're praying for us too. There would be labors beyond count that the Lord will send into his harvest field. And may the Lord give us a burden and faith for souls to have his eyes to see fields that are white for harvest. And if it's not a season for harvesting, that we would busy ourselves with the plowing up our fallow ground, with the planting and sowing of his good seed, the word of God. Jesus said, go your way. Behold, I send you as lambs among wolves. He sent them out as lambs, like juvenile sheep. And a lamb doesn't even have teeth on the top. They only have the milk or the baby teeth on the lower jaw up to one year of age. And you think the only way those lambs are going to survive among wolves is if they stay close to the shepherd, the one who called them, the one who sent them that they were dependent on Christ for their food and their housing, to protect them as they walked along the way, to guide them, to make them fruitful. I mean, if you had a pack of wolves and a few lambs going out, we wouldn't give the lambs any chance for survival. But because Jesus sent them out, and he's the good shepherd, they were going to be protected and provided for. Jesus is the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. Luke 10, verse 4, carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. But whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go house from house to house. Like the apostles, they weren't to carry any provisions for their journey, nothing just in case, like an extra pair of sandals or a money bag, because Jesus was teaching them not to find security in a bag of money or a staff, but to look to God to supply all their needs. And God would use people to do that where he sent them. As they walked along the road, they weren't to greet anyone because the task that Jesus had set them to do was an urgent task. I'm reminded of Elisha when Elijah threw his mantle on him and he asked, hey, can I, I will follow, but let me go say goodbye to my mother and father. Let me go kiss them. And kissing his father and mother in that culture turned out to him uh, to be a two-bull barbecue where he cut up the, uh, the plow he was using. He 
slaughtered the yoke of oxen and he fed the people of the village. That's not like a quick peck on the cheek and on their way. It was like an event. And for the disciples to, to greet people along the road, that would mean receiving hospitality. That would mean having their feet washed and being anointed with oil and, and eating food and maybe even staying overnight. So it's a, there's a lot more that went into it than we might think. Um, this urgency to follow Christ. They showed obedience. It may have appeared strange or rude, but it honored the Lord above all. They weren't to bring supplies, believing that Jesus would supply their needs. And every household that received them, they'd be blessed by God with peace. If the people weren't peaceable to God and Christ, then God's people and His peace would not rest there. They were to move on. Jesus instructed them, stay in one house when you arrive at a city. Don't go from house to house. Don't seek better accommodation or greater honor amongst the people, but stay where I have sent you. And they were to eat with a clean conscience the food that's provided them. And God was in this way providing for them uh, wages for their labor unto him. Paul said that it's not, that it is fitting for those who labor in spiritual things to receive uh, compensation by having physical needs met. The law mentions not muzzling the ox that treads out the grain, and God cares much more about people than oxen. So they were written for our sake so that we would realize that it is an honorable and fitting thing to receive those wages as they did. So now we'll be in Luke 10, verse 8. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. And heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. If they were received into a house and people accommodate, provided accommodation for them, they were to eat what was set before them. And this is a really big step of faith by people who lived under Jewish law and only ate kosher. And it's a very common practice to this day for Orthodox Jews to have their rabbi directly overseeing some of the slaughter of the animals to make sure that it is done in accordance with the law. So they take that very seriously. Jesus was teaching them that their purity and their cleanliness, their cleanness, it did not come from the foods that they ate or the food that they avoided, but by Christ who sanctified them. He gave them the food to eat, and they were to eat it with a clean conscience. Miracles of healing, it provided proof of their ministry. And the gospel claimed, the kingdom of God had come near to you. So their words were not empty. They were attended by these miraculous healings so that people could know, like, wow, they're talking about the kingdom of God, and this is miraculous. This is genuine what they're saying. Those who were physically healed, they had a brush with the power of God. Those who were born again by grace through faith, they had even a greater enduring miracle and that their souls were cleansed and saved. They were redeemed through faith in Christ. I find the order of this passage interesting because the ones who received the messages, messengers, they were the cities where people were healed. Those who refused the messengers, 
They refuse the saving power of Christ who heals and saves. If the disciples entered a city that refused them, Jesus said, go into the streets, publicly announce that they would wipe the dust that clung to them as a testimony against them. One of the first things people would do when they received a guest or a visitor would be to wash their feet. And so these people had, they would have dusty feet from their journey, from walking through their city, and it showed they had not been received, the fact that they had these dusty feet. But the kingdom of God had indeed come near them. A glorious king can have dusty, poor messengers. You look at those guys and you think, man, what could they offer? What could they supply? But they were bringing the good news of Jesus Christ, and the kingdom of God had come right there, and the people could receive it. The promise of forgiveness, righteousness by faith, a glorious entrance into eternal life through faith in Christ had come to them, but in rejecting Christ, they rejected all. Jesus said, you're going to be rejected. He wouldn't have told them this unless he knew it was going to happen, that at points they would be rejected. But in rejecting them, it wasn't, they weren't to take that personally because they were really rejecting Christ. Jesus said, I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. And this is a pretty heavy statement considering what happened to Sodom, what God did to that city full of people who sinned against God. There weren't even 10 righteous people in Sodom, and so God punished them for their sin. Isn't the word tolerable like a very ironic word to use because we say, oh, the heat in here, it's tolerable. Like, I can endure this. No one endured the punishment of Sodom. Nothing living of plant or animal remained there when God was through, when he judged that city. Genesis 19, 24, and 25, it says, Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. So there was nothing left was completely annihilated um, by the power of God. Heathen people, young and old, when the angelic messengers came to warn them of the destruction, they gathered to rape the angels that God had sent, who were in the form of men. They gathered around and wanted to take advantage of them. And they didn't have the law and the prophets. So the angelic messengers, they laid their hands on Lot and they brought him out because he was a righteous man living in that city. And God held those people accountable. He had given them a conscience. They had, um, they had everything they knew to walk in an upright way. They had Lot living amongst them, whose soul was grieved by the things that they did. It was a greater sin, however, than even the sins of Sodom for the Jews to reject messengers of the Messiah who was spoken of in their law and prophets. They would be judged accordingly. And so the punishment for cities and people who reject Jesus would be less tolerable than that of Sodom. Sodom's overthrow came at one time, but those who perish for rejecting Jesus have eternity of sorrow and suffering and torment. Luke 10, verse 13, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! 
For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. He who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. It must have been shocking, even for the disciples to hear. Um, A largely Jewish audience. That Jesus would pronounce woe on Jewish towns and cities where he did wondrous works. Where he was met with resistance and unbelief. The passage in Luke and the parallel one in Mark They contain mentions of Chorazin. That's the only place in the Bible that we read this town. It's such an obscure location. People don't know exactly where it is. Um, It's Jerome that suggests Chorazin was only a few kilometers away from Capernaum. So it was in the Galilee area. Bethsaida, also located in Galilee, the hometown of Apostles Philip and the brothers Peter and Andrew. Tyre and Sidon are in modern-day Lebanon, Phoenician coast. Coastal cities, the prophets pronounced woe against. They were destroyed by Alexander the Great in 332 B.C. And in 64 B.C., the region was annexed to Rome by General Pompey. Tyre became a Roman colony. It would not have been surprising for the Jews for Jesus to speak woe against Tyre and Sidon because they had been, by the prophets of old, being Gentile towns. But it was a shock to hear it would be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than Chorazin and Bethsaida on the day of judgment. Jesus knew the hearts of men. He says, if I did the miracles in Tyre and Sidon that I did in those cities, they would have repented long ago in dust and ashes. But people were hardened against his word. They would not hear. They would not believe. They refused him. I think how much less tolerable is it today for people who have the Bible printed in their own language? It's available. It testifies of the wonderful works of God, and they don't read it. They don't believe it. Some people believed only hearing about the miracles that Jesus did. Some people saw them. They read of them. They heard of them, but they did not believe. And the knowledge that we have of Jesus and the things that he's done, they have been preached for thousands of years. People have heard, but do they believe? Do you believe? Jesus singled out Capernaum in Galilee where Simon Peter lived and the disciples resorted. It was kind of a hub of ministry for Christ as he uh, traveled throughout the region. The preaching and miraculous deeds of Jesus had been done there. They had been exalted to heaven, but he says they'd be brought down to hell in judgment. Today, Capernaum, it's a ruin. It's a tourist attraction on the Sea of Galilee. It's a shadow of the former glory when Jesus walked its shores and taught in its synagogues. And Jesus lays out a principle in the second part of Luke 12, 48, that shows God holds people accountable for what they have received from God. It says in Luke 12, 48, For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required, and to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. The people of Capernaum, they had witnessed so much teaching and healings and miraculous deeds done by Christ, yet they refused to confess him as Messiah and Lord. The testimony of a guilty conscience, that's deserving enough 
of eternal judgment in hell, to deny the Christ when the truth has been so plainly declared and demonstrated that Jesus would demonstrate his love for them on the cross, and for us, it brings even greater judgment. No man on the day of judgment will be able to use ignorance to cover their sin any more than you being ignorant of the speed limit means that you are innocent when you've broken the law. Jesus tells them that he took the rejection of his messengers as if he was the one being refused and rejected. He says, he who hears you hears me, he who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. This morning I was reading in 2 John verse 9 that it says, if you do not abide in the doctrine of Christ, that you do not have God the Father. You cannot have the Father without the Son. When you speak the name of Jesus and you're rejected for it, it's Jesus who's being rejected. We might be rejected and excluded because of our faith in Christ, but to reject Jesus is to reject God. No one can say they believe in the Father, that there's a God, yet reject Jesus as the Son of God, who is Emmanuel, God with us. It does hurt to be rejected. It does sting when we see people refusing to hear um, the gospel of Christ and they see no need for him in their lives. But Jesus provides consolation. He continues to love. And the one who refuses Christ today may receive him tomorrow when the good seed of his word is sown. We have to be patient. As long as there's good seed being sown and we have God's word, and uh, God is faithful. There's always hope for a good harvest in due time. And so we need not lose heart. Let's keep on walking in the light and sharing God's love with others. Luke ten seventeen. Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. I love that the 70 return, not bummed out because they were refused by some people, but they're rejoicing that God, through them, accomplished much more than they even imagined. Because if you remember, Jesus hadn't said anything about sending them out with power over spirits as he had the apostles. But faith in, through faith in Christ, the messengers were effective and the spirits were, they were driven out from before them. This is no surprise to Jesus who did the work because he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Matthew Henry, he wrote this, he confirmed what they said as agreeing with his own observation. Satan and his kingdom fell before the preaching of the gospel. He falls as lightning from heaven, so suddenly, so irrecoverably. Satan falls from heaven when he falls from the throne in men's hearts. And Christ foresaw that the preaching of the gospel would, where it went, pull down Satan's kingdom. God used these 70 to deal a great blow to the gates of hell. The power of Satan was broken. People came to faith in Jesus Christ. 
The second part of 1 John 3, verse 8, it says, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. There's a lot of books, there's a lot of teachings on spiritual warfare. A a great amount of emphasis is placed on uh, knowledge of what to do rather than who to trust and who to rejoice in. The power of Christ in the gospel, it can be made secondary to techniques or methods rather than just naked faith in Jesus Christ, obedience to Him, and the fear of God. Because when we fear God, all fear of um, the principalities and power of the darkness, those are just washed away in the power of Christ. Only Jesus has the power to make Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And you don't need to be an apostle. You don't have to be one of the 70 or a pastor or an elder. As long as you are a child of God and you follow Jesus, God has provided this victory by grace through faith for you too. This is what happened when you gave your life to Jesus Christ and you now have Jesus sitting on the throne. Satan fell like lightning from heaven. And there's no recovery from him when Jesus sits on the throne. Spiritual warfare, it can have its own section in a bookstore, but its victory, God accomplishes through the lives of all Christians because of Christ and what he has accomplished. These 70, what do they do? They proclaimed peace, they preached the kingdom of God, and they prepared people for Christ's arrival. Now, those three things are not often uh, camped on when you think of spiritual warfare, right? These disciples, though, they were obedient to follow Christ, to follow him in faith. God miraculously overthrew the powers of darkness. Satan fell like lightning. And the power of Satan was trampled underfoot by these little lambs who bleeded out the gospel wherever they went. Jesus continued, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. This teaches me that genuine believers, we can focus and rejoice over the wrong things. The power over spirits, it wasn't their power. It was God's power at work through them. Spirits and men will all day be judged, all one day be judged. Instead of rejoicing that the spirits were subject to them, Jesus says, rejoice that your names are written in heaven, in the book of life. Having been subject to Christ, They'd experienced God's love, his salvation. Jesus didn't forbid them to rejoice over the work that he did in or through them, but he balanced it with a reminder of their powerlessness in themselves. They couldn't save themselves. They needed their names written, and only Jesus can write that down. They couldn't do anything for their own salvation. They couldn't couldn't wield any power. Um, It was only through the grace of God that they were victorious, and that Satan's kingdom was demolished. They, they were saying, Lord, thank you for giving us eternal life. Like, focus on this. This is the thing to rejoice in. God accounts faith in him as righteousness. All who repent and trust in Christ, they have assurance that when your name is written, Jesus will not blot it out. I like what Trapp said, too. He says, Paul, by his privilege of being a Roman, escaped whipping. We, by this, escape damnation. So we've been born again. We've been adopted into the family of God as believers. And 
God's eternal acceptance, his love, his grace and faithfulness, that's what we should rejoice in. Really, rejoice in him and all he's done. Luke 10, verse 21. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. This is a really special mention because it's the only place in the Bible where we read of Jesus rejoicing in the Spirit. He's excited, he's thrilled by God's fulfillment of his design. Jesus rejoiced over those that he sent out as lambs among wolves, helpless juvenile lambs who spoke forth the gospel, and the power of God was manifested through them. It's like uh, God's strength was made perfect in their weakness, where these weak lambs go forth and Satan falls like lightning from heaven. And he rejoices over his rejoicing messengers, despite their faults. And he praises God for revealing the truth to those babes, to those 70, those who were ignorant, who had no knowledge of the things of God, and yet God, by his grace, revealed it to them and used them to accomplish great works for his eternal glory. All things, all power, all authority is given Christ by his Father, and we walk in his light. Jesus said, no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Father wills to reveal him. So the Father reveals the identity of the Son, and Jesus revealed the Father. Jesus said in one place, he that has seen me has seen the Father. And in another place, I and my Father are one. Jesus is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. But they are one with the Holy Spirit as the one true triune God. And Jesus points out that there's no man who knows Jesus as Lord without divine revelation. That's the only way that you can know Jesus as Lord is because God has revealed that to you. And the only way we realize that we are sinners in need of a Savior and that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life is because God has opened our eyes to see it. We can't even take credit for that. He's given us life, he's given us eyes to see and ears to hear, he's changed our hearts, and we have surrendered to him in that work. Jesus provided revelation, opportunity for all cities to prepare for him, some refused to hear him. And the fact that Jesus sent disciples to cities that would refuse to receive them, that he would come to the lost sheep of Israel, knowing full well he would be rejected by them. It shows him that his will is that all would come to salvation. He doesn't hide it from some because they're not privileged or special or chosen. No, he has called all, and so he reaches out to all, even those he knows will reject him, so that they will have an opportunity. And if they don't, re- if they don't come to their senses then, They have an opportunity on a later time to repent and trust in him. It's not God's will to keep people from salvation and eternal life, but it's man's unwillingness. We are often unwilling to believe, unwilling to obey. Luke 10, 23. 
Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. Jesus, it says he pulled his disciples aside privately to speak to them. And he, at the same time, he puts his arm around us and he pulls us aside to speak to you and to me. And he says, you are blessed to live in a day when Jesus Christ has been revealed, that the kingdom of God is proclaimed, where the power of the gospel causes Satan to fall like lightning from heaven, and that we can know our names are written in the book of life. You know, lightning falls to the ground much faster than gravity. I, I think it was something like a third the speed of light. It moves very quickly, and that's a quick fall. It's not like a slow motion fall. It's like immediate. The power of God, it just unseats Satan, and Christ sets up his throne in our hearts. We can know our names are written in the book of life. I mean, we live in a glorious day. 2020 has taken a lot of hate because of the things that have happened and the uprisings and the, the struggles of this world, the, the, the conflicts and the anger and the hurt and the pain and the oppression, all these things, it seems to just be building. And people are, I don't know if they're searching, but they're hurting. They're hurting, and, and we need, there's never been more need for Jesus than today. And Jesus has come. So this is a glorious day. This is a day when we rejoice, knowing that we have hope in Christ. Hope for healing and re restoration and revival. There were all these Old Testament prophets, faithful prophets, who did not see the fulfillment we see. They wanted to see it, but they never saw it. Kings with great authority, they did not hear the kingdom of God. They never heard the gospel. They didn't hear the, the gospel preached with the power of the Holy Spirit and the authority of Christ displayed through His little weak lambs who followed Him. The law, the prophets, the Sabbaths, it was all a shadow of what Christ is the reality. Now, when you see someone's shadow, and, and you didn't see who was casting the shadow, and all you saw was the shadow on the ground, it would tell you very little about the person. You wouldn't be able to describe their facial features or what color of clothing they were wearing or their hairstyle. The, the Jews' concept of God was developed from his, the plagues poured out upon Egypt. These mighty miracles, the, the walls of Jericho falling down, um, appearing to them on Sinai in a thick cloud with the earth quaking and the trumpet from heaven. Uh, the God who thundered against the Philistines and rained hail upon them. The, the God who caused fire to fill the temple and to consume the sacrifice that Elijah offered on Mount Carmel. This holy, unapproachable God in power and might who came to earth as Jesus Christ, clothed in humility and meekness, a man who called no place on earth home, who preached repentance and he walked in love, meekness and grace. He didn't shout in the streets, but he sent out these 70 little lambs to go out into these villages to prepare the way for him, to reveal the glories of God's kingdom that kings and prophets had never seen before. Jesus was not the Messiah people expected, but there is no Messiah but Christ. 
There is no name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Are you willing to follow Jesus as one of his little lambs wherever he sends you among wolves to do his work? We are powerless, helpless, hopeless in ourselves, but God rejoices to reveal himself to us and through us so that others will be prepared to receive him. This is the great work that he has called us to do, to serve our Lord Jesus, to rejoice in him. And I encourage you to turn your eyes to Jesus today. Open your heart to the Holy Spirit. In Christ, we're more blessed than prophets and kings, no matter how you feel or what you see on your newsfeed. May we rejoice in Christ, whom God's revealed wherever he sends us, because wherever we work, Jesus is working in us and through us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us that you have made us that thin end of the wedge through which you do work. And Lord, we are not strong. We are weak. We are frail. We are forgetful. But you have filled us with the Holy Spirit. And Lord, make us like those obedient disciples who went wherever you sent them. Though they were they were rejected by some places. They accomplished great things because you did a work in them. You did a work through them. You caused Satan to fall like lightning from heaven. How swift was his fall. And thank you, Lord, that you reign supreme, that you've given us hope, that you help us, that you deliver us and save us. And I pray that our eyes today would be upon you, that our hearts would be fixed and rest in your promises and your goodness. Lord, we desire to, to honor you and glorify you. Lord, for those who are out of work or struggling with work, um, Lord, I pray you would do a work in us so that wherever we go and whatever we do, you'll be glorified and honored. We praise and thank you, Lord, that you are good and your mercies endure forever. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.